Well, I'm, uh, I'm thankful to be uh, done teaching with marriage. <laughs> I don't know if I stress that enough, because marriage is such a big topic. It is such a heavy topic, and uh, here's why I didn't really want to teach on marriage, is because I can't really do a good job in an all, all, all a, uh, comprehensive job of teaching how to, how to have a perfect marriage, because number one, I don't have one, and uh, number two, it is just a really big topic. It takes a lifetime to learn those things. So I'm done with that, and I hope I did a good service to that topic. At least got your, you know, minds thinking about some things and gave you some ideas about marriage, and hopefully just kind of realigned your paradigm about marriage into a more eternal kind of aspect of it and thinking about how it should represent the gospel. And I have been for a long time wanting to teach through a different book of the Bible. And for those who don't know, what we're doing is we're teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we restart what's called the Torah cycle in the fall at the end of Sukkot. And then once we restart the Torah cycle, we'll jump back into the Torah portions and begin to teach through those again. Um, but this year has just been kind of a year to go through the book of Luke, the book of Acts. We went through Mark, uh, Acts, uh, marriage, and now the book of Ruth. And uh, I've been studying the book of Ruth and reading it, and I'm excited to share with you guys some of the insights. Now you see all these bookmarks in my Bible. Uh, these are all verses I'm going to take you guys today. So we, we got a lot of ground to cover. And here's how I'm going to do this. I'm watching the clock. we got about an hour, maybe a little bit less, and I'm just going to take you through as long as I can, as far as I can, and then we're just going to cut it, okay? I know that's really spiritual of me uh, for about an hour, but we're just going to, I'm going to try to, to answer this overarching question about the book of Ruth. Um, and let me share that question with you. Is the gospel of Yeshua, the gospel of the kingdom, is it found in the book of Ruth? You guys remember this story where Yeshua is walking down the road, and he joins these two men on the road to Emmaus. And they just left Passover in Jerusalem. And these guys are kind of downcast looking. You guys recall this? It's called the road to Emmaus. And they're kind of downcast looking, look kind of sad. And he asks them, he's like, why are you look so sad? You know, he begins this conversation with them. And they're like, are you, are you the only one in this area who has no idea what has just transpired in Jerusalem this year, Passover? He's like, no, tell me. And, you know, so they, they begin to share with them, well, there was this man who seemed like a really good candidate to be the Messiah, promised to us in Scripture. But he just died. <laughs> he was just crucified and executed by the Romans. And all of our hopes are now dashed. And so Yeshua is like, wait a second. I thought that that's supposed to happen like that. And they're like, what? You know, so he begins to, it says that he opened up the Scriptures, starting with the prophets and going to the Scriptures and sharing about how the Mashiach, Messiah, had to suffer for the sins of Israel. Had to first suffer and die for the sins of Israel. And he opens up their eyes, and it says at the end of this little narrative, this little side trail narrative uh, about the road to Emmaus, it says that their hearts burned within them. So if Yeshua could do that, do you think we could do that as well with maybe the book of Ruth and find a glimpse of the gospel of the kingdom embedded within the book of Ruth? Do you think so? I think we should be able to. Let's see if we can achieve that. So, number one, I looked at the book of Ruth, and as I'm reading it, and as you've probably read it, you know, over and over again, maybe growing up you've heard this story, it's very familiar to you, and all due respect to Ruth and her family, the book of Ruth is not a story that you really think about being on biblical proportions. There isn't this massive flood that wipes out all of humanity. There isn't a man that builds a boat and floats above it. There isn't like a Red Sea splitting. There isn't like people being fed miraculously. Uh, there, there isn't like, you know, someone being caught up in a, in a whirlwind of fire or anything like that. There's not these amazing, just 
mind-blowing miracles going on in the book of Ruth. But here it is, just about in the middle of my Bible, the book of Ruth. And you read it, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's a good story, right? It might be the makings of a good Jane Austen novel or something like that. But it's not like, to me, when you read it and you don't have the proper lens or glasses on as you're reading it, you're kind of thinking, well, how did that make it in the Bible? Why is that there? You know, it's a good story. I'm not denying that. And there's a beautiful lesson in here. And yeah, you know, there's all kinds of devotions and stuff. I'm sure Joyce Meyer has all kinds of books about Ruth and everything else. But it's like, but really, it's not a biblical proportion kind of book when you look at it on the cursory level. But I hope that I can maybe open your eyes to some of the deeper insights and things and lessons within the book of Ruth that are hidden just below the surface. See, I think that Ruth is supposed to be looked at by us as prophetic. You might be thinking like, how so? You know, it is a, there's different kinds of prophecy in the Bible. You have what's called apocalyptic prophecy. That's like your, your good, like the book of Revelation, um, some Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel. You know, there, there's a lot of cryptic language about locusts and horse, horses and people on horses and bulls being poured out and fire and all kinds of plagues. That's apocalyptic prophecy, okay? But then you get this other category of prophecy that I like to call narrative prophecy. And I believe the book of Esther is narrative prophecy. I think Ruth is considered narrative prophecy. In other words, there's a story. The story goes from point A to point B. There's a clear ending and there's a beginning. There's not a lot of cryptic end of the world kind of language happening in it, but it's prophetic in its, in its underpinnings. You got me? But let's talk about a little bit about Ruth real fast. We think it was written between the 6th and the 4th century BCE, what we call the Persian period of the time of Israel, the, 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 the um, history of Israel. It's traditionally in synagogues all around the world read during or leading up to the holiday called Pentecost or Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. We don't know exactly who authored this book, but a lot of scholars speculate that it might be the prophet Samuel. And the overarching theme, and you're going to see this in the book of Ruth, the overarching theme is one thing, looking for and finding rest. Look for that in this book as we read it, okay? Looking for and finding rest, all right? Here's what I want you guys to do as we spend the next, I don't know, one, two, maybe, maybe five at the most weeks in the book of Ruth. I want us as Dothan Messianic Fellowship, when you step into this and we get into this portion of our worship service and we begin to look at Ruth and I'm teaching you about Ruth, I want you to pretend to the best of your ability that we're like a first century Messianic or just a traditional Galilean synagogue, okay? That we're just a congregation meeting in the Galilee of Jews and maybe some non-Jews and we're reading this some for the first time. We're reading the book of Ruth. Now, in ancient times, you didn't have a Bible like this with all the books of the Bible in them. You had a, a, a little, a little um, cabinet like we see here in a synagogue or like a little, it was like a little um, shrine, I guess, for lack of a better word, like a little opening in the synagogue wall. It was like the, where all the holy texts were kept, that that community had the money to save up and buy and write, okay? So if we, as a community wanted to put our money together and commission a scribe to go somewhere else, maybe up to Jerusalem and look at the temple library and copy the book of Ruth and then bring us a copy back. That might be a little bit costly for us to do, but we would acquire the book of Ruth and we would have it 
And then we would be able to put it in our synagogue's library, so to speak. And then every Shavuot, you know, 50 days after Passover, we would get that scroll out and you might come the evening of, uh, of Shavuot and someone might unroll the scroll of Ruth and begin to read this narrative. And I want you kind of get into that mindset that here we are gathered on the eve of Shavuot and we're about to read the book of Ruth. Okay, can you, do, you guys think you can do that? Okay, turn in your Bibles to Ruth 1. I know I, we wouldn't be doing that in the first century. You've already, you've already uh, failed the test. No, I'm just kidding. You can turn there. Ruth 1. Now I'm just going to go verse by verse and offer some commentary. And we're going to try our best to get to the end of this chapter and we'll see. Ruth 1. It says that back in the days when the judges were judging... When the Shoftim were judging. All right? Now, let's pause there. It's important that the author put that in there as a preface, as a, as a prelude to the story. Because what he is saying, or what she is saying, we're not sure, is basically we're living in the Wild West during the times of Israel right now. There are some lawless times that this story, is event, this event is taking place in. If you don't believe me, go to Judges 17.16. You don't have to turn there. But Judges 17.16 says that... As the judges judged, during the times of the judges, everyone did. There was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay? Do you think that sounds like a good place to live? Do you think that sounds like a good... So everyone was, was trying to choose their own pronouns. <laughs> everyone... I saw, I, saw, I saw a politician, a video of a politician this past week. Where he's standing there and he slaps a $20 bill on the table. He's down on the Senate floor. And he says, I want anyone in this panel and speaker to tell me if you have the courage to tell me when human life begins. And if you can do it, there's $20 for you. He's looking around, looking around. Just, Madam Speaker, can you tell me when life begins? There's $20 for you. Silence, crickets. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That's terrifying that the leaders of our nation have the cowardice and cannot even define when human life begins. That's a bad sign. Everyone doing right, what is right in their own eyes. That's called moral relativism. And anytime a nation or a people group adopts that as the moral standard, because everyone's too scared to stand up for what is absolutely true and universally true, anytime that a people group adopts moral relativism, they don't have much longer on the timeline of history, okay? But that's okay because we are citizens of a kingdom that is an eternal kingdom. Don't get alarmed by that. Our, our lineage goes way back. Our movement goes way back. Our movement has survived the rise and fall of kingdoms and empires and persecutions. It's just part of who we are, and we embrace that. Because in that persecution and in that, those hard times, comes intimacy with our creator and the refinement of our movement. And with the refinement of our movement comes the supernatural. Becomes the, comes miraculous signs and wonders. It's just like when Jennifer is going to make those oil lamps with you guys. She is using oil that has been refined. She's not going to use oil and put oil in the lamps that has all kinds of pollutants and sediment in it. Why? Because refined oil burns bright. It gives off light. 
refined people, the body of Messiah refined gives off a bright light. Okay? Right now, I would say that as a collective, the body of Messiah is flickering a little bit because it's confused. There's a little bit of pollution in it. So it says, that's verse 1, at a time when there was a ra'av. Can you guys say ra'av? And it comes from the adjective, I guess it is, ra'ev. Ra'ev means to be hungry. I hate being hungry. So it basically it says, there was a time of great hunger, okay, in the land. Because it's like, here, if we have a famine in our land, you know, we could probably manage to get enough shipping containers into our country to keep us fed to it for a certain amount of time, right? Or maybe we have stores of food somewhere. What the author is saying is that everyone was starving to death. You got me? Now, when was the last time that there was a lot of people starving to death in the Bible? During, During the times of Joseph. You could keep that in the back of your mind. It says that there was a certain man from the house of bread. Now, I hope the irony is not lost on you there. When it says that there is a great hunger and everyone is starving to death, but there was a certain man from the house of bread. Beit Lechem. Who else was from Beit Lechem? Yeshua was. Who else? David was. David was. You see, Beit Lechem was supposed to be this special place. It's kind of like when we look at, what do we call it? The bread basket of America, right? It's okay, yeah, it's always going to be there. We can trust in that. The Midwest, you know, there's lots of grain, there's lots of corn. Kansas is always going to be there. You know, we don't have to worry about that. But what if we did have to worry about that? And I know Miss Joanne and her parents lived through a time called the Dust Bowl where they had to worry about that in Oklahoma. This crop's decimated. Think about that. The house of bread is hungry. And he went to live in a territory called Moab. Now I have a map because I want you guys to be able to see this. From Bethlehem to Moab. It's not very far, is it? But which direction is it, cardinally speaking? It's east. Yeah, it is down away from Jerusalem, but in our lingo, it's east. East is always code name for what? Exile. Exile. Now, wait a second. We've got a good Jewish family, a good Jewish man living in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place where David's from, the place where the Messiah will come from, but he's starving. That's not supposed to happen. Right? Didn't God say when you go in and you possess the land, I will give you plenty of food? So this gives us a little bit of insight as the culture and the, the surroundings of the story. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Because remember, if we're a first century Jewish congregation reading this, we're very familiar with Deuteronomy 28, aren't we? But let's read it just to be safe here. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says, we're going to read just a couple of verses. If you listen closely to what Adonai your God says, and you observe and you obey all his commandments which I'm giving you today, Adonai your God will raise you high above all the nations of the earth, and all the following blessings will be yours in abundance if you do what the Lord your God says. 
a blessing on you in the city, a blessing on you in the countryside, a blessing on the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your land, and the fruit of your livestock, your young cattle, and your flocks, a blessing on your grain baskets, and on your kneading bowl. Does that sound like what's going on here? Go with me to verse 48, or I'm sorry, verse 45. Deuteronomy 28, 45. But all these curses will come upon you, pursuing you and overtaking you until you are destroyed because you did not pay attention to what the Lord your God said. You did not observe his commandments and regulations that he gave you. These curses will be on you and your descendants as a sign and a wonder forever because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness in your heart when you had such an abundance of everything. Verse 48. So the Lord will send your enemy against you and you will serve him when you are hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, and lacking in everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he destroys you. So let's go back to the book of Ruth now. It says the judges were judging, which is code word for everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And then it says that there was a great starvation, a famine in the land. Even to the house of bread, there was starvation. Why? Because they're disobedient. And then they're getting exiled east. There's a great migration happening. They're going to this place. And now this place is not just any arbitrary place. It's the land of Moab. What is significant about that? Moab. Well, Moab, it means, it, it literally means from my father. But go with me to Genesis 19, verse 30. Now, this is a humiliating place to have to flee to and search for food in. Genesis 19, verse 30. Genesis 19, 30. You guys are familiar with the character named Lot, Lot, right? It says that Lot went up from Soar, and he lived in the hills with his two daughters because he was afraid to stay in Soar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there isn't a man on earth to come to us in the manner that is customary in the world. Come, let's have our father drink wine. Anytime anyone uh, gets drunk in the Bible, bad things happen. Then we'll sleep with him, and that way we'll enable our father to have descendants. Verse 33, so they plied their father with wine that night, and the older one went in and slept with her father. It's, an, it's a picture, it's a reminder of the Garden of Eden and the seizing of the fruit. He didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. The following day, the older sister said to the younger, here, I slept last night with my father, let's make him drink wine again, and you go in and sleep with him, and that will enable us to, our father to have descendants. So they plied their father with wine that night also, and the younger one got up and slept with him. And he didn't know when she lay down or when she, he, she got up. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their own father. That's not kosher, right? Yeah. The older one gave birth to a son, and she named him what? Moab, from my father. So, he is the ancestor, it says, of Moab to this day. So, look at this map. Look, think about the humility that they're experiencing. They're in exile for disobedience to God's word. 
the, down to the very house of bread. Beit Lechem. There's starvation, a great hunger. And where do they have to go to find food? The place of Moab. Ugh. The embarrassing place, right? The place that those people are descended from that relationship in the cave. But they got food. Oh, thank you. Is that for me? Yeah. They have food. So let's keep going. He, his wife, and his two sons, it says. The man's name was... Oh, let me pause here and say that if your translation does not say Bethlehem of Judah, that's wrong. Make sure it has Bethlehem of Judah written in there. Because what it's doing, there was, a, there was a Bethlehem up in the tribe of Zebulun up in the north. But this Bethlehem is the Bethlehem of Judah. And the author has that. It's in the Hebrew, believe me. It says Bethlehem of Judah. But the complete Jewish Bible does not have that. It leaves it off. Shame on it. So uh, where are we at? Verse 2. The man's name was, my God is my king. Elimelech. My God is my king. His, uh, his were Ephratim from Bethlehem and Judah. They arrived in the plain of Moab and settled there. They set up shop there. And Elimelech, my God is my king, Naomi's husband died. Now here we see Naomi for the first time. And she was left... She and her two sons. Now, does anyone know what Naomi means? The pleasant. the pleasant one. The pleasant one. So they took wives for themselves from the women of Moab. Say, uh-oh. Uh -oh. And the name of one was Oprah. I mean, Orpah. <laughs> Everyone gets a car. No, don't. That's the wrong. Orpah. Now, Orpah, these names mean things, guys. So let's make sure we define these names. It comes from the, uh, the, the adjective Oref. Oref, if you look at, go with, De go with me to uh, Deuteronomy 9, chapter 6. Deuteronomy 9, 6. Real quick, Deuteronomy 9, 6. Let's see how this, this is used. Because this is so important that we define these names and see how they're used. Deuteronomy 9, 6. Deuteronomy 9, 6. Therefore, understand that it is not for your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are an oref people. You see what it is? Stiff-necked Stiff -necked or stubborn. Okay, so go back to Ruth. Go back to Ruth. It says that one was named Orpah. She was named the stubborn one. And the name of the other was Ruth or Ruth which means friendship or a close association. They lived there for about 10 years. Can you picture that? 10 years in the land. They set up shop, didn't they? They were not intending to leave. They were in exile. Then Machlon and Kilion both died. Now let's define their names real quick. Machlon, I think I skipped a verse earlier, didn't I? Machlon, it comes from the, um, the verb kala. Chala means to be broken into pieces or afflicted or stricken. Um, I think it's connected to where we get the type of bread that we make on Shabbat, chala, which means like pieces. Um, but that's what his name comes from, is machlon, the, sick, the sickly one or the, uh, the stricken one. Okay, And kilion. Now, kilion comes from kala, which is the idea of to be finished or ended. Finish or ended. And then what do we see happen? They die. <laughs> they're finished and they're ended. Both of them, it says. 
And the woman was left neither her two sons. And the woman was left with neither her two sons nor her husband. So let's get this straight. Let's review. Ruth and Elimelech and their two sons, Machlon and Kilion. They have they get very hungry. They're living in Beit Lechem, which is like a royal town. They have to flee to the land of Moab, which is like the place that is settled by and, and inhabited by descendants of an incestuous relationship. And then Kilion, Machlon, Elimelech, all dead. So Ruth is left. I'm sorry, Naomi is left with Ruth, the friend one, the friendly one, and Orpah, the stubborn one. <laughs> Verse 6, So she prepared to return with her daughters-in-law from the plains of Moab. For in the plain of Moab she had heard, from, for from the plain of Moab she had heard how the Lord had visited. Okay, the translation there should be visited. It is a, um, vi he visited his people by giving them food. Now this, what you would hear, if you're hearing this, if you're a Hebrew speaker and you're hearing this read in its original language, is you would hear shepherding language. You would hear uh, like a, the language of a shepherd going and visiting his flock and then giving them like a big bale of hay. Giving them food, okay? Now, this is important that we understand this because what does Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, right? Go with me to Numbers 27. Let me do this. I'm going, to, I'm going to go to all these verses. Numbers 27, 16 to 17. If you want to turn there, you can. But I'm going to go through them fast because I have them bookmarked. But for the sake of time, let me just go through these kind of fast. So Numbers, numbers 27, Numbers 27, 16 to 17. You can turn there. You can just listen to me read. Whatever you want to do. It says, Moshe said to Adonai, Let Adonai, the God of the spirits of all human beings, appoint a man to be over the community, to go out and come in ahead of them, and lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's community will not be like sheep without a shepherd. See, there's, in Numbers, way back in Numbers, the people of Israel have been referred to and thought of a flock of sheep. Don't believe me? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. Isaiah eleven twelve. We find that on my bookmarks here. Isaiah eleven twelve. 12. Stacy was so kind to make these bookmarks for me this morning as she was eating breakfast. Isaiah eleven twelve. Let's see if we can find some shepherding language here. Isaiah eleven twelve. He will hoist a banner for the Gentiles, and he will gather together and assemble the dispersed of Israel, and gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So you picture the shepherd, right? The shepherd goes up on a hill, and he might whistle or he might call for the sheep, but the sheep, right? They know his voice, and they come running. Have you guys ever seen videos of that happening before? I've seen that. It's really cool. Let's go to a couple more about the shepherd language that we're seeing here. Let's go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. If you can turn there real quick, you're welcome to go there. Ezekiel 34. Find it on my bookmarks here. Ezekiel 34. We're looking for shepherd language. And we're going to go to verse 2. Ezekiel 34, 2. Human being prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy, tell them, the shepherds that the Lord your God says this, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the choice meat. You clothe yourselves with, the wool, with wool. And you slaughter the best of the herd. But you don't feed the sheep. You don't strengthen the weak or heal the sick. Bandage the broken. Bring back the outcast. Or seek the lost. 
On the contrary, you tyrannize them with a crushing force. So they were scattered and without the shepherd, and they became food for every wild animal. And they were scattered. My sheep, he says, have wandered around aimlessly on every mountain hill. Yes, my sheep were scattered all over the land with no one to search or look for them. Verse 7, therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, the Lord God swears, because my sheep have become prey, my sheep have become food for every wild animal, since there was no shepherd, since my shepherds didn't look for my sheep. Instead, my shepherds fed themselves, but not my sheep. You hear the shepherding language and the, the people of Israel? Sheep, right? We are sheep, right? He is our shepherd. Let's go to John 10. It's a very important verse. John 10. John 10. John 10. A very important uh, section of scripture here. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then go to chapter 10. John 10. Who is this shepherd that he will end up sending? Go to John 10, verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd, Yeshua says. The good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. You see what he's doing there? He's saying that shepherd that God promised in Ezekiel 34, I'm here. The hired hand, since he is not a shepherd, uh, and the sheep don't on his own, he sees the wolf coming, he runs away. And the wolf drags them off and scatters them. And the hired worker behaves like this because that's all he is, a hired worker. So it doesn't matter to him what happens to the sheep. You see the language there. I hope, I hope I've done a good job repeating that. So you can see Israel is God's sheep. But in the book of Ruth, Israel is scattered. These people are living in Moab. But then it says, and they're using very intentional uh, shepherding type language here. And it says that the, in verse 6, she had heard that how the Lord had visited them and gave them food. So verse 7, so she hears the voice, right? As a sheep, she's like, I'm going to come running to the food in my land. So she left that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and took the road leading back to Yehudah, to Judah. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Each of you, go back to your mother's house, and may Adonai show chesed to you, as you did to those who died and to me. And uh, chesed is like loving kindness or mercy. Verse 9. And may the Lord grant you menucha. Uh, that's a key right there. In the home of your new husband. Menucha, it's the idea of perfect rest. Okay? Now go with me to Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11.2. And I'll show you how it's kind of used here. Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11.2. Menucha. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will menucha on him. Who is it talking about? It's talking about a root that will grow up from, from Jesse, from Yeshai. And it says that the Spirit of, of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and fearing the Lord. He will be inspired by fearing the Lord, and he will judge not by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but he will judge the impoverished justly. 
He would decide fairly for the humble of the land. So what's happening here is Isaiah is saying that the Messiah will have this idea of, he will embody this idea of rest, menucha. So much so that this became one of the messianic titles, even in rabbinic literature, that the menucha, the giver of menucha, is the Mashiach. He gives pure rest, pure, perfect rest. This is also the root of a biblical character's name, Noah. You guys ever heard of Noah? Right? What did he do? He gave the world rest. He brought, he was an agent and a catalyst of rest. Yeah, there was a lot of calamity before that rest. But he brought Menucha. Noah brought Menucha. And in fact, there's a play on words in the book of Genesis where it says that the, the ark came to Menucha on the mountain. It came to rest. All right? So let's go back to the book of Ruth. So they're looking for rest. But she's saying, you'll go find it in your husband's, your new husband's home. And then she kissed them, and they began weeping aloud. And they said to her, no, we want to shuv with you. Now, what is shuv a root of? It's the, the verb teshuvah, which is repentance. See, when you face towards the land of Israel, and you begin to walk, that's the idea of repentance, coming back towards the land. So the opposite is exile. You're facing away and you walk, or you're forced to walk away. But when you turn back around and you come back, that's the idea of repentance in its most physical and literal terms. So she's saying, no, we want to shuv with you. So do you think there's maybe a little bit of a code word going on there? That maybe at least one of the daughters is saying, no, Naomi, we want to repent and go back to your homeland. We want to turn from the ways of the Moabites and go instead with the ways of the Israelites. And she says, we want to return with your people. Verse 11, Naomi said, go back, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Now, this is important. If you are familiar with Zechariah 8.23, and you don't have to turn there. I can read it to you. But Zechariah 8.23 gives us a bit of prophecy. And it says the following. The Lord of hosts says, when that time comes, that ten men will take hold all speaking different languages of the nations. They will grab hold of the cloak of one Jew and they will say, we want to go with you because we heard that God is with you. So go back to Ruth now. You see what's happening there? They said to her, we want to repent with you because we heard that God is with you. We want to be part of your people. And she says, Naomi speaks to them, Do I still have sons in my womb who could become your husbands? Go back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. And even if I had a husband tonight, she, says, she actually says in the Hebrew, I still, uh, uh, I still do not have tikva. I don't have any hope. But for if I had a husband tonight, and even if I bore sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you refuse to marry just for them? No, my daughters, on your behalf, I feel 
very mara. Now she says, she actually says, marli me'od. I feel very bitter. Man, she is a bitter woman. That the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. She doesn't sound like she's in a good place, does she? She's not, she's not having a good day. She's not having a good year. Think about that. She had to leave her homeland and her family and her land. And back then, your family's connectivity to the land was everything. They say in the South, you ain't no kind of man without land, right? <laughs> back then, your, your identity was intrinsically connected to the land, right? Mark Twain says, buy land because they don't make it anymore. <laughs> but she lost all that connectivity. She lost her family's identity. She lost her two sons. She lost her husband. She has no tikva, no more hope. She's lost and without hope in this world. Man, things are looking bleak for Naomi. But her two daughters, man, they're like, okay, we want to go with you. And she urges them, no, no, no. Like three times she tells them, go back. And it says, verse 14, again they wept aloud. Now, Naomi, like I said, is cut off from everything that she has and her land and her people, her family. But she's a Jewess. But what's interesting here is that she doesn't see it at this moment in time, but she does have hope. And her hope is in a Gentile, is in a Moabite named Ruth. That's, that's interesting. And that is prophetic. And we're going to see later on how. It says, Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. She's gone. She's like, all right, fine. But Ruth, the friend, she davach. Now uses the Hebrew davach, which is the same word, exact same word used in Genesis 2, 24, when it says that a husband or a man shall leave his father and mother and join his wife. And, the, and, and when it says join his wife, it uses the, the verb davach, to cleave together, to be glued together. And the two will become like one. So it says that, that it says that, uh, it says that, but Ruth devak with her, stuck with her, like one. Verse 15, and she said, now pause here a second. Pause here a second. Most people in this room, you see the prophetic picture that is developing here? Most of the people in this room, you just prayed a bunch of Hebrew prayers that go back for thousands of years. Once in a while, we get out a Torah scroll and we parade it around this room and we read from it. We celebrate holy days that most of you, if not all of you, didn't grow up celebrating. Many of you might have a little Hebrew necklace around your neck. Many of you long and love to visit and travel to the land of Israel. And you can't get there enough. Many of you, if not all of you, face toward Jerusalem when you prayed the Shema. Which the Shema, arguably, everyone in this room probably didn't know 20 years ago. <laughs> Think about that. Do you hear the prophetic language going on there? So, I'm not going to spoil the story here, but we've got Naomi, and we've got Ruth the Gentile. Naomi the Jew, Ruth the Gentile. Ruth is saying, I like what you have going on there. There's hope in what you have there. Naomi is like, I don't have any hope. And you, I don't even want you to tag along with me. I want you to go back. 
Does it sound familiar? Yeah. It sounds like the relationship between the Messianic movement and normative Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> right? To a certain extent. We're like, no, we, we want what you have. We want to study the Torah. We want to do this. We want to keep these commandments. We want to celebrate the feast days. We, we want to abstain from certain foods. We want to read Hebrew. We want to go to the land, right? And then much of the Jewish population is like, wait, how many are there of you? <laughs> what are you doing? You can't do these things, right? Go back to where you came from. We liked you better sitting in church, warming a pew. These are our things, right? It's this weird, tense dynamic that's going on here. But you can see it continue to play out. And it says, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and back to her God. You go back after your sister-in-law. Now let's pause here. Who is this God that Orpah is going back to? We know who it is. We know the God of the Moabites. His name was Chemosh. Chemosh. He was a very uh, mean, kind of flighty God. You know, like he, obviously he wasn't real. He might have been like a demon or something like that in the spiritual realm. But sadly enough, if you want to go to 1 Kings verse 11, 1 Kings verse 11, I'm taking you guys a lot of places in today, aren't I? Mm -hmm. Stacy made all these bookmarks today, and she goes, she had them on her hand. She's like, you guys, you're going to wear everybody out. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 7. I'm going to go ahead and read it while you guys are turning there for the sake of time. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Uh-oh. Besides the daughters, beside the daughter of Pharaoh. There were women from the who? Moabites. Moabites. The Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zoninites, the Hittites. Nations about which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you are not to go among them or they will, you, you will deeply attach to them. Uh, you, I'm sorry, because you will turn your hearts away toward their gods. But Solomon was deeply attracted to them by his love. Oh, man. He had 700 wives, all princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon became old, his wives turned his heart away toward other gods, so that he was not wholehearted with the Lord his God, as David his father had been. For Solomon followed the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, uh, Sidoni, uh, I'm just going to say it in Hebrew, Sidoni, and, uh, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Thus Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's view and did not follow the Lord as David his father had done. Here it is, right here, verse 7. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. The God, wait, it says the abomination of Moab on the hill in front of Jerusalem. Wow. And another for Molech the abomination of the people of Ammon. Solomon did this? Solomon adopted the worship of Chemosh to the point where he's building an altar probably near the Mount of Olives, if not on the Mount of Olives. Think of the proximity to the God, the temple of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wasn't Ammon the daughter or the... Uh of the youngest daughter of Lot? I think so, yeah. yeah. Yep. Now go with me, there's hope. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23, verse 13. 2 Kings 23, verse 13. I'm going to go ahead and read it for the sake of time. Now who is the king here? 
not Solomon. It's King Josiah. And everyone should go, woo! Josiah. It says, the king desecrated the high places facing Jerusalem, south of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, built for. He built him for the Ashtaroth, uh, the abomination of the Sidonim, and Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So in other words, Josiah is going in, he's cleaning up. He is demolishing these places of idol worship. But here, we have it. Let's go back to our story in Ruth. Verse 15. She said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and back to her chemosh. Back to her God. So you, Ruth, go back after your sister-in-law. Ah, but verse 16 says, but Ruth said, don't press me to leave you and stop following you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Amech, your people, will be Ami, my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord bring terrible curses on me and worse ones as well if anything but death will separate you and me. You see, um, Ruth has a longing for the people and the land and the God and the language of Israel, yeah. even before stepping foot into its nation. Does that sound familiar? I met, a, I met a guy one day out walking a trail behind my house, and that man got to talking to me, and he was saying, you know what, I'm studying the Hebrew language. And I thought, interesting. Tell me more. And that man is sitting right here. <laughs> there is no rhyme or reason as why this man was walking forever wild trails behind my house and why he and I crossed paths and got to talking about it. And he brought his lovely wife as well. But that the Lord put something in his heart that had a longing for the Lashan Hara. I'm sorry, the Lashan Kodesh, the holy tongue. And, and the pure speech that it is. And, and here he is. And he's been drawn in because of that. And it's like we are a bunch of Ruthites, so to speak. We're a bunch of graftees. And I want to get ahead of myself here, but let's go um, to the next verse, verse 18. I think we might make it to the end of this chapter. We're doing good. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She's like, man, I give up. So the two of them went on until they came to Beit Lechem. Now remember that we're seeing a book, perfect bookend here happening. She left Beit Lechem. Now she's coming back. And when they arrived in Beit Lechem, she's been gone for how long? Ten years. Ten years. The whole city was stirred with excitement over them. The women asked, can this be Naomi? What does her name mean? Pleasantness. Pleasantness. But how did she describe herself? Bitter. Very bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi. She answered, but call me Mara. Bitter. Because Shaddai, El Shaddai, has made my life very bitter. I went out full, and Adonai has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Adonai has testified against me. Shaddai has afflicted me. Now let's pause. Little does she know that probably just a couple feet away from her as she's saying this is Ruth, the hope, the tikva. And we're going to see Ruth's name come up much, much later 
and some of the early verses of the Gospels. And I want to get ahead of myself. Verse 22. This is how Naomi returned. Now, think about this. Remember after the Holocaust, how the people, the Jewish people, wanted a homeland. And it wasn't like um, the British just opened the borders of Israel, what they called British-controlled Palestine at the time, right? They didn't just like throw up in their borders and say, okay, yeah, everybody come on in here, right? There was Jews who were getting on boats and having to try to sneak, and they would rush up the beaches in Tel Aviv, what became Tel Aviv, and have to run and hide from the British so that they wouldn't be deported out of British-controlled Palestine. But they knew that that was in their ancestral homeland. But many of them were stepping off of those boats. If they were lucky to have anything, they might have one or two suitcases to their name because everything that they had was lost. They left full and then came back empty, came back bitter. Now, it's changed a little bit now, hasn't it? Now the nations surrounding Israel, the ones that say, ah, you and your people, your God is with you. They've supported Israel. And we've backed, thankfully, the United States of America traditionally and historically has backed this place and these people having a rightful place in their land. And I pray that we continue to do so. But they left full and came back empty. This is how Naomi returned. With Ruth, the woman from Moab, her daughter-in-law, accompanying her from the plains of Moab. They arrived at the house of bread, Beit Lechem, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, what is the barley harvest? We, can, we know by this date right here that they're arriving in early spring. They're arriving right after Passover. Think about this. So far, we have a famine. There is a search for food. And we could see Naomi saying goodbye to her daughter-in-law, Orpah, as sort of like a removing the yeast from her home. You see where I'm going with this? And then we see Ruth as like the treasure from Egypt. And then later in the story, I hate to spoil it, we're going to see someone miraculously provide bread for them. You could see this as like a little tiny Passover experience that's happening. But we know that's happening around the barley harvest, and that's significant. That's going to come into play later with the rest of the story. And that's why we traditionally read this story around the time of Shavuot, which is the culmination of the barley harvest. Now think about this. There was a famine. The famine was in the land when Naomi left. But the fullness was in Naomi. Okay? Now we get to this part. Now when she returns, the fullness is back in the land, but the emptiness is in Naomi. You see what's happening? But God has a plan, doesn't he? And then Ruth comes along and she's like, no, I'm not leaving. And she's like, no, go, go, go. No, I'm not leaving. Go, 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 go. Go back to your people. No, I'm not leaving you. Right? And I think Ruth is a picture for us of the non-Jewish believers coming into a realization and a belief and a grasping hold of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, and saying, no, we're not going to leave you. No, 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 I need you to go. I need you to go. No, we're not going to leave you. Right? They're becoming like one new man. Yeah, there's a little bit of tension at first, 
but they're getting there. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2 real fast. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're almost done. Ephesians 2, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 16. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh are called the circumcised. Remember, at that time you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. Sounds like Ruth, doesn't it? You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world and without hope and without God. Sounds like our friend Ruth, doesn't it? And a little bit of Naomi. Verse 13, but now you who were once far off, like in Moab, let's say, or Dothan, Alabama, have been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood, for he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one, and he's broken down the middle wall that has divided us by destroying in his own body the, what has been occasioned by the noman, the law, with its commandments set forth in dogmas and dogma. He did this in order to create an union with himself from the two groups, a single new humanity, and thus make peace. And in order to reconcile to God, both in a single body, by being executed on a stake as a criminal, and thus himself killing that enmity. Okay? You see what's happening there? And I believe this is being played out. Oh, we got rain coming. I believe this is being played out in the life of Ruth, in the story of Ruth. So let's go back to Ruth, and let's close out a little bit about Ruth. Some final thoughts I have about chapter 1. What can we learn about Ruth so far? She's a person of character, a person of principle. She's someone who is willing to leave her homeland and what is familiar to, familiar to her and go to a place she's probably never been to her entire life. She has hope. She's very loyal. She's very loyal. And she sees that Naomi, her people, her God, have a good shepherd. What can we learn and apply about Ruth to our lives? That I believe our job, your job, is to be where God tells you to be and to do what God tells you to do. And that's it. That's success. Now, the world kind of defines success differently, doesn't it? The world defines success as your net worth, your bank account, your real estate holdings, etc. How many people like you, how many followers you have on TikTok or Twitter or you name it. But God defines success as the following. You be where he tells you to be, and you do what he tells you to do. End of the story. And I tell my boys that every once in a while. I should tell them more. That I don't care what you grow up to be, and how much money you make in your life. If you are where God wants you to be, and you do what he wants you to do, I am extremely proud of you. That's successful. I'm not saying wealth and all that stuff is bad. But it, is a, it can be a trap. Let's close in prayer and then we'll end uh, with the ironic benediction today. Abba Father, may you make us like Ruth to have this steadfast faith to see your people and to see the promises you've given to your people and to stubbornly hold on to and support them in that. May we have a yearning and a craving for the things of your kingdom. And we thank you so much for the rain today. I pray all this in Messiah's mighty and precious name. Amen.